0: We've, uh, we've been started last week with a very quick introduction for the new year into the idea of what we see in 1 Peter, what it means to be knit into a body. Uh, and the way Peter describes it is that we are built uh, into uh, a living building. Uh, and it describes us in building terms, so we've got the idea of being living bricks Knit together, and so we've got this great graphic, which Amy has worked out for us, of being uh, knit together as a, as a wall, if you like. As a, We all rely on each other. We are knit together. We are interrelated. Uh, and consistently through the New Testament. The body which finds Jesus to be the head. So Jesus is the head of this new building which we are knit into. And so we're going to spend some time looking at what it means for us to live life together. Just a quick opener really. We're going to be working through one verse today. The opening verse as an introduction to the book of James. Do not worry. We're not going to go at the pace of one verse a week. But rather the introductory verse is so helpful for us to understand the context in which this letter was written. We find ourselves introduced to both the writer of the letter and the first receivers of the letter. That's what it is. It's a letter. So James chapter 1 verse 1 says this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ... That's the author, that's who I am, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That's who it's to. But a background, and really, hopefully, an introduction as to why this letter is so important. It was pretty much one of the first letters that were written, It was written by a man named James, who we find earlier on in the New Testament. We realize this, that James was a brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus. That's a great introduction, isn't it? So we see, firstly, James is writing a letter to a whole spread congregation of churches in all sorts of places, which we'll come to in a minute. And it's the brother of Jesus who is writing this letter. It was one of the first letters that were written. And the idea as we see it in the introduction here, this first verse where it says, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. What we see is that it is written in such a way to be passed to all of those churches and for them to pass it on to other churches that they are in contact with and for it to be, if you like, a circular letter. And so we find ourselves here today, 2,000 years later, receiving, uh, if you like, a circular letter from the brother of Jesus. And it is as applicable to us today as it was when it was first received by those first hearers 2,000 years ago. The interesting thing is we find that it was one of those... (laughs) If we are bricks in a wall that are knit together by God, then we also find that the steps that he takes us through as a people through history, that there are, if you like, there are building blocks that God has used in in securing his people down through the ages. What we find, how is it that we are here today? We find that this letter is at least part of of what God used to grow the church. He used this letter. It was sent out to new churches. Newly established churches. People who were just beginning to believe in Jesus. And it was what changed part of what made the contribution to the world being changed. Uh, I heard, um, I heard, uh, uh, what was it? Yeah, I think it was a TV program, actually. Melvin Bragg did a really interesting um, documentary on the, the impact of the King James Version of the Bible. Last year, uh, 400 years old, the King James Bible, 1611, a tremendous impact on the history of, of Western society. Literacy exploding Because the Bible gets printed and passed out to lots of different people. The impact on literature, the impact on literacy, the influence on writings, all of these things that the Bible has had a tremendous impact on civilization. But even more than that is for us to realize if the 1611 translation of the Bible had an impact on Western civilization, how great was the impact of these first letters as they were received by people where the world was changed as a result of what was written down and shared amongst people. Here's a few quick figures. We looked at them a few Tuesday evenings ago, but it's important for us to look at them again. AD 40, probably around about six years ...before this letter was written. It was probably written around about A.D. 46. A.D. 40, it's estimated that there were around about a thousand Christians in the world. (laughs) A thousand believers in Jesus in the world. What we see is a 10% increase in the Christian population in the world for each decade... Between that point in time and the point where the Christian faith has pretty much taken over the Roman Empire. A 10% increase per decade. That results from 1,000 believers in AD 40 to AD 350, 33 million believers. Fairly conclusively... Identified from historical information. That is world changing. 33 million is 56% of the Roman Empire. That is much bigger change to be honest. Than the King James Bible in relative terms. That is world changing. From 1000 to 33 million. But get this. If that rate of increase is consistent over that period of time, in AD 100, 60 years after Jesus had walked the earth, you know how many believers there would have been? That kind of rate, 7,500. It's not many, is it? To go from 1,000 to 33 million, it didn't sound as if it was being particularly successful. By AD 100, 7,500. Maybe if you or I were believers at that point in time, we might be wondering, is this really going to be successful the way Jesus said it would be? And yet, 250 years later, it is the greatest faith in the Roman Empire, where it has become the majority of people have believed, And that is nothing, that is nothing compared to the impact that it has had across the world since AD 350. Where there are proportions of the world now which are turning to faith in Jesus at a greater rate in person numbers than that point in time then. Sub-Saharan Africa... Southeast Asia, many parts of the world where the rate of conversion to the Christian faith the numbers of people coming to faith is astronomical we live in in a country which has experienced the Christian faith and we feel as if somehow it's declining sometimes don't we? it is growing the Christian faith in sociological terms is a success story But we would say it's not because it's a sociological success story. Rather, it is the power of God in this world today. And it starts by this kind of letter being sent out to different people. Small groups of people. Tiny churches. Tiny churches. Probably churches a quarter of the size of what we are here now, today. Receiving this letter from the brother of Jesus Sharing it, reading it out on a Sunday as they gather together and seeing step-by-step step growth. And so I would say if that let, this letter contributed to people learning to live together practically, then we've got to hear it today, haven't we? It's got to be relevant for us today. If it is what we believe it to be, the living word of God for his people for all time. And so we come to this. And we're only going to look at the first verse. I wonder whether we can get that uh, up on the screen. James chapter 1 and verse 1. Jesus, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. James, brother of Jesus. Doesn't seem much, does it? That is an extraordinary statement. It is an extraordinary statement. It's extraordinary because if we go back and look at the life of Jesus, we find that his brothers were really cynical. There was a point where Jesus was teaching and Jesus' brothers said to him, in John chapter 7, they go to him and they say this. Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. This is a bit disparaging the way they're talking here. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, they say. And then it goes on to say, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Even his own brothers did not believe in him. So here's Jesus. He's spending his time travelling around Galilee and he is performing incredible works. They are seeing it. They are recognizing that he is doing things which are incredible. They are seeing him perform these works, and they say, Look, just just go. Go and do it somewhere else. Go and go and minister somewhere else and see. If if you're really who you claim to be, just go and show the world. I think in a sense it was almost a a statement of frustration, almost a statement of, we're fed up with you. Just go away and go and do it somewhere else. We don't believe in you. Those of you uh, with siblings, I tell you what, we're the most honest with each other, aren't we? We really are the most honest. You know, it's a bit like, um, it's a bit like brothers. Um, I've got a little bit of an experience of having brothers in Under One Roof with three. It's great fun. And uh, brothers will fight tooth and nail uh, amongst themselves. Anybody else outside, you know, in the playground kind of thing, if if there's any trouble for one of your brothers then they're all going to pile in for the sake of their brothers but there is a brutal ruthless honesty amongst families isn't there it's not just brothers brothers and sisters parents and children we are the least patient with each other why is that important because James was a brother of Jesus and knew him like nobody else He'd seen him grow up. You know, aren't we all really good at creating the front? You know, the public persona, what everybody sees. James knew what Jesus was like behind the scenes. He knew what Jesus was like in the quiet of their own home. He knew what it was like when he was growing up. He knew what he was like when he was interrelating with people when the public, if you like, didn't see it. Here we've got somebody who is really close to Jesus and at the point where Jesus is ministering, at the point where he's traveling around, he's seeing him doing amazing miracles and he does not believe in him. <clears throat> in a strange way, I think that that is one of the most compelling messages That James brings. That we find ourselves with somebody who is a skeptic who has become a believer. Somebody who is close enough to know the reality and is naturally skeptical because to be honest we don't give our families much space in this kind of thing but he becomes a believer. Why? What happens for James to make that transition? We actually read it in this verse. The reason James makes a transition is because he has become a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase is incredible. That phrase, Lord Jesus Christ... It's not a triple barrel name. It's a statement of relationship to start with. James is saying, Jesus is my Lord. He is my authority. My brother has become my authority. I now no longer relate to him as a brother on a peer level basis. He has become the one who is above me. He rules me. He is my Lord. He is a benevolent, kind Lord. He is one who is compassionate and giving. He is not one who kind of, in being my Lord, presses me down and subjugates me. He is my Lord. I love him as my Lord, but he is my Lord. Now just think about that. How many occasions do we find it possible for a sibling to make that transition? If you've seen um, the movie Stardust, some of you will have seen it, um, it's, a, it's probably not worth watching, it was uh, a lot of money for not a great film, uh, but it, ha- it centres around the story of these eight brothers, I think it is, who are all looking to be kings and one by one they kill each other to be kings, <laughs> well that's kind of you know sibling rivalry. James does the complete reverse of that. He believes Jesus to be the rightful Lord of his life. But in saying Lord, he also relates him personally because he says, Jesus, my brother. Do you ever have the idea that God is very distant? Do you have the idea that God is not interested in you personally? God is this big out of there kind of concept There was a time when that appeared to be the case according to the God of the Bible. And then God makes himself personally known. He relates to us personally with a name. A name which is Jesus. For those who walked with Jesus day by day. They were able to turn around to him and say Jesus. And he would turn around and speak to them. Because they have called him by name. God becomes personal. So this statement that James is making is he is my Lord, but he is personally known to me. And then he says Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ means, it's if you like the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, the promised one. In other words, James is saying in one little phrase, Jesus is personally my Lord, he is personally related to me, and he has been historically promised throughout the whole of the world's history and is the fulfillment of God's purpose in this world. That is an incredible claim, isn't it? For somebody who didn't believe in him, how did that happen? How did he get to the point of saying that? we actually read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 an explanation of how James got to this point. We read this. Uh, Paul says this, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is what the Christ is all about. According to the Scriptures, he died for our sins. That he was buried... That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. <laughs> See what he's saying? What caused this change from a sceptical brother to a servant of Jesus, putting Jesus on the same level as God himself? He saw him alive after he had died. We're calling this, this session here, Historical Foundations a living living hope historical foundations James life was changed when he saw Jesus alive when he came to terms with the fact that the Jesus who had been uh, hung on a cross who had bled to death asphyxiated which is what crucifixion does gone approached by a Roman soldier, ready to break his legs to force his death more speedily, find that he is actually dead, has a spear thrust into his side where blood and water pour out, is taken down from the cross as a dead body, put into a tomb, there for three days. On the third day, the tomb opens and Jesus appears. Then he appears to many people, 500 people in one place, and then he appears to James. And James says, right, from this point on, everything, everything changes. Jesus is precisely who he said he is all the way through his ministry. He is who he claims to be. He is who scripture has to, claimed him to be. He is the Christ. Therefore, he is my Lord. Let me just say this. That is the foundation for the worth of this book. The fact that Jesus has risen and lives. It's what makes it worthwhile. It's what makes it life-changing. I have had the, the privilege, the joy, of being able to speak to people who have realized that Jesus lives personally. They've experienced it. Not that they've seen some sort of shimmer in front of them, some sort of glowing, gaseous figure of Jesus. But a deep, in the heart, realization. Jesus lives. Do you know what? That is almost impossible to explain. It's got to be experienced. But when it is experienced, it is real, it is deep, it is life-changing. And that's what happened for James. So that's who wrote it. How committed was James? He was so committed to this that he died for it. The early church father, writer, gathering historical information, his name was Eusebius. Eusebius writes three accounts of the death of James. All of them end up with James being stoned in Jerusalem. One of them recounts that James, on proclaiming Jesus, was taken to the pinnacle of the temple and was thrown off. Didn't quite kill him, and so he was stoned afterwards. That kind of commitment, that kind of determination, I will die for this, is the kind of change that had gone on in James's life. And it's the kind of change that takes place in people's lives... Where they realize that I can no longer live as I once did. My life has changed from now on. It has changed at such a rate and with such a, such a determined kind of focus that the kind of things that we're going to be looking in the next few weeks are not just nice things to do. They are essential aspects of life change. And so James says, this is who I am and I'm writing to you The twelve tribes that are scattered, you see it? To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. That is a really strange phrase. Twelve tribes scattered. It doesn't make sense, maybe, for some of us. What does that mean? Does twelve tribes scattered? Why does that have any relevance to us today? Twelve tribes scattered is, if you like, it's throwing a connector all the way back across the history of the Bible and allowing that anchor to land at the very beginning of the formation of the people of Israel. Jacob, Israel, thousands of years earlier, has 12 sons who God says, from your family will come a great nation. A great nation who will know my blessing, a great nation who will be my people. And what James is saying is this. You who are receiving this today are connected historically to that very beginning of God's dealing with his people in this world. You are connected to that thousands of years ago. We have a problem with that. In exactly the same way as the first readers would have a problem with that. Because they would think, to be perfectly honest, we're modern people. You know, after all, we live in the Roman Empire now. We've got water running in our towns. We've got sewage systems. We've got ways of writing. We are a developed modern people. What have we got to do... With a band of nomads who wandered around a desert and lived in tents. That's what they would have thought. What have we got to do with that? Do you know what? I think the same problem is, applies just the same for us today. 2,000 years later. What have we got to do with just a band of people 2,000 years ago. Who were pretty uh, intellectually inferior to us in our kind of crass modern uh, superior attitude who think we think that we're just great in everything that we do and we think that anything that is new is the only thing worth embracing and we live disconnected from our heritage and james says you people today are connected to the heritage of god throughout time, through his people. And he says to us today, you are connected to 2,000 years ago. You are connected to thousands of years ago. You and I are connected to Abraham as he went out into the night sky and saw thousands upon thousands upon thousands of stars, a countless number. And God said, of that number and greater will be your people. And we are that people. There's, um, there's a great video that been, that's gone viral over this past week. It's by uh, Jefferson Beth and it's entitled, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. Uh, it's a great video. It says loads of the kind of things that I'm sure you would probably have picked up if you've been coming along. Re- Christian faith is not religion It's not false religion. Jesus opposed religious people, intolerant religious people. He opposed all of that. And I agree with that 100%. Do you know one of the slight dangers? Is that in embracing only the today, we lose our connection with who we are from the past. We lose our connection with a realisation that God has been working out where we are today through thousands of years. We would not be here if it wasn't for Abraham, who was out there in the desert living in a tent. We would not be here if it was not for James writing a letter to a group of Christians dispersed, Spread out throughout the empire. We would not be here. And therefore we are in danger of jettisoning all of our rooted history. Loving the fact that God has knit us into into a past. Do we want to belong? Do we want to belong to something? Do we find that we do belong to something? Yes we belong to something. Not because we simply belong to something now. But because we are knit into a history that God has been forming from the very beginning of time. And this verse tells us, be very, very careful. Be very careful. Not to live getting rid of all of the past. Not to live continuously thinking that today is the only thing that it's all about. I say that deeply conscious As a church which is meeting in a surprising place. Approaching church life in a way which is different to many. In a way which is we trust engaging with the world that we live in. But remember this. We are engaging in the world that we live in today. Because people in the past engaged in the world that they lived in in their day. Don't get so arrogant as to say therefore we reject everything that has gone off in the past and throw it away as irrelevant. We would not be able to engage with the world today if it was not good for those who had engaged with the world that has gone by. And that is not false religion. And that does mean that there was a time where people were engaging with forms of religion and activities. Which when they are stretched too far become empty. But in the context of the day that they were living, they were real and they were vibrant and they were God's way of dealing with his people at that time. And thank God, he is still dealing with his people today. And so, as we become a church, growing together, we want to do two things. We want to live today we want to live relating the gospel to the world that we are living in today we want to be people of today we want to engage in the discussions and the challenges and the environments of today but we do not want to be that like a boat that is cast off and disconnected from everything that God has done in the past Because we learn from them. We see the errors. I want to ask this question. We quite rightly. Might be those people who would say. And pinpoint and identify the errors of previous generations. Previous decades. Previous centuries. See those errors. What about this? What will subsequent generations recognize with us? What will they see in us as our weaknesses? What will they see in us as our deficiencies? I think that's a key question for us to ask. We can only ask that question by realizing that we are knit into a history which is not in our hands, is in God's hands. He is shaping us. He took somebody like Eusebius. Who had a whole bucket load of stuff. I wouldn't agree with Eusebius. But do you know what? He was God's man at God's time. In God's place. Doing God's work. And he did it differently than we do it today. But he was part of the stream. Of God's dealing with his people. You might be thinking. Is this really what the church is all about? Just looking in the past. I would just want to suggest to you as we close this. Can you really live in this world today thinking that it's all just about now? I want to ask you, where are your anchors? Where do you belong? Where do you find your identity? Because if we live only in the now, we realize this, don't we? We realise that we are tossed backwards and forwards, to and fro. We are shaped by what is in at this moment in time. And what is in today was out yesterday. And what is in today will be gone tomorrow. And we find ourselves just cast about. Like a little stick in a torrent of water running down a, a valley. And God has not designed us to be like that. You know, it's it's fun for a while, isn't it? Keeping up with the latest technology. And then you realise that you're on a treadmill. It's great, isn't it? Keeping up with the latest in thing. And then you realise that you've been through seventeen wardrobes in three years. We need deeper roots. Because we are made for deeper roots. We are made for a connectedness and I would suggest to you that the Christian faith is the only connectedness that we can see displayed in this world that can really logically take us back through the whole of world's history and say this is where you are today because of what has gone before